You can remain standing through the sermon if you want, but it won't make it seem any shorter. Please be seated. I, I, I prefer to come up to pulpit, I hope you don't mind, because I can keep an eye on the choir and make sure they're not misbehaving, playing with yo-yos or something. I'm sure you know. Um, what a week for me. Um, I, I've been on a reading break this week, which meant that I was just round the corner from a pub with Sky TV. And, and so I've seen the most two remarkable football matches, and I'm a Liverpool fan. And, uh, and I was up near Manchester, and by God's grace, uh, only 11 miles from Manchester, at short notice, uh, a, a Bishop Daniel's wife, remember Bishop Daniel visited here last year, Bishop Daniel's wife got a visa and, uh, and then flew into Manchester Airport. So I was able to pick her up from Manchester and take her to, uh, to, to Lancaster where she's doing a course. And then I came home and yesterday we had about 35 people in the house for lunch and, and a barbecue from one of our holiday teams. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm Bob and I've retired from parish ministry and paid work in order to carry on the work of running kids' holidays and training people in, uh, in ministry through running holidays. Um, as a couple of people in church, uh, Jill, who... Uh, that song just reminded me that uh, Jill was a member of a church when Songs of Fellowship 1 was out. And we used to sing that song, Let There Be Love Shared Among Us. We're now up to volume five, I think. No, six. Volume six of that. There's sort of 500 hymns in each one. So it took us back a while. And Jill was uh, in my youth group and she's still helping on the holidays. And her daughter, Brian, is with her and she helps with childcare. We had a whole team of people. And uh, that means that the team of people where we run a holiday and it's a great holiday, but it's a Christian holiday and that means we, we usually look at a gospel. And it's John that we were looking at. So I gave the passage that uh, Craig's just read to the advanced group uh, yesterday to sit around a garden table and try and make, uh, find out what are the big questions in the passage and what are the other questions in that passage. And actually, because we were doing the whole passage through the end of the chapter, it wasn't so easy. The big question at this point in the gospel is who? Who? is this that has come among us and then there are some other questions that need addressing in that passage like what are they arguing about and what's the response and is it saying the response to what Jesus says in this passage um, and then why does Jesus suddenly start talking about sheep in the middle of an argument with the Jews it's not an easy passage so um, so if you were a bit puzzled, normally the Bible's pretty easy to understand with the Holy Spirit's help. But this one is one of those passages that's easy to understand in the sort of sweep of John's Gospel. But when you're only looking at this one little story, it's much more difficult. But the theme running through this passage are two of the main themes of John's Gospel. One is that from chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own knew him not, they rejected him. Uh, people didn't want the light because they preferred works of darkness, it says in the first chapter. So the rejection of Jesus 
is one of the main themes of John's Gospel. But the other theme is belief. That some people believed and became children of God. And when you get to the end of the Gospel, the same thing is there. These things are written that you might believe. And in believing, have, have life. But a crowd of the Jews, probably leading Jews... Uh, including Pharisees and perhaps some of the people from the temple. They find Jesus walking in the outer courts of the temple and they gathered round him and say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles, this is reading from the NIV, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. The NIV actually helps us out, whereas the, most versions of the Bible put the works I do. And that's, I find that quite interesting because the word is not miracles, it is works. It's the word from which we get ergonomics. And in John's Gospel, Jesus just refers to the great works of God that he do, does as the works his father have given him. They're just what he does. They're his work. Um, John, the gospel writer, when referring to the same events, calls them signs because he sees significance in them and they point to who Jesus is. Strangely enough, actually Luke's gospel in passing, uh, Luke uses a different word. He uses dunamis, which is the word we get dynamite from. Um, works of power. So Luke's concerned with the power. John sees them as what they signify. Jesus just sees them as the work that his father's given him to do. But he says that speaks of who he is. Are you the Messiah, they're asking. The word Messiah echoes Moses. And Moses said, God will send you someone like me. Listen to him. And then sort of 1,300 years later, they're expecting him to come. And now the question is, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. I have told you, he says, but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. Now, why sheep? Well, the first half of chapter 10, he's been talking to the disciples about him being the good shepherd. And probably he's teaching in public, so some of the Pharisees and the, his uh, opposition are listening to that. And uh, Jesus teaching about I am a good shepherd, for us, is a sort of rather nice thought. But for them, the leaders of Israel, it's a more difficult thought. Because a lot of the prophets, particularly Jeremiah, uh, spent a lot of time saying the leaders of Israel were bad shepherds. They were bad shepherds. They didn't look after the sheep. They were concerned only for themselves. And God says, I'm going to come and be their shepherd. So Jesus actually saying, I am the good shepherd, is a bit sharper than we hear it. They're going to be thinking, uh, yeah, he's implying that there are bad shepherds around and he's the good shepherd. But also there's a slight claim to be the one, the God who rolls his sleeves up and turns up in person there. There's a hint of that. You are not my sheep, he says. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life. That's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? By implication, if you're not my sheep and you don't hear my voice, I'm not giving you eternal life. The the opposition has been building. Why is this argument so, so sharp and uncomfortable? If you go back to chapter 9, you get the story of the man born blind who is healed. And if you haven't read it lately, I'd go back to chapter 9. I think it's the funniest chapter in the, chapter in the Bible. It's a wonderful story. And the man born blind is healed by Jesus making mud. But Jesus does it on the Sabbath. Making mud was how you glued bricks together in the old days before we had cement and that was banned by their interpretation of the rules of the Sabbath you weren't allowed to do any building work making mud counted as building work so when Jesus heals a man born blind by making mud he's breaking the law but he's also fulfilling the greatest prophecy That the one that God was sending would open the eyes of the blind. Because no one else does that in the Bible unless they've just made them blind. Only Jesus in the whole of the Bible makes the blind see. So he fulfills the great prophecy of Isaiah while breaking their interpretation of the law of the Sabbath. And they just can't cope with this. So according to Jesus, he's shown them plainly who he is, the Messiah, or more than the Messiah. And they can't cope because of their fixed idea of what it's about. You know, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, we need to be aware of that in our religious life. That sometimes we can get so fixed upon what it's all about that we can miss something essential about following Jesus get caught up in the trappings of church life and some particular issue in church life. And they were so stuck on this one interpretation of the law that they could not see what was happening among them. And in chapter 9, the Pharisees go and interview the man who formerly was known as blind and they interview his parents. And the parents are very afraid. And it says in chapter 9 they were afraid because the Pharisees were threatening to put people out of the synagogue if they started to follow Jesus. So they were already trying to get rid of Jesus' followers and put people off from following Jesus. But Jesus is saying, no, my sheep know my voice and they can't be taken away from me because my father has given them to me. And I think those words are still very comforting for us. If we're Christians and we've recognised Jesus' voice and we've come to him, nothing can take that away from you. Almighty God, the Father, has given you to Jesus and you are his. And you might mess up sometimes, but that can't undo what God has given to Jesus. Then Jesus doesn't go out of his way to make friends, I'm afraid. My father who has given 
them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. I and the father are one. And this is one of the statements where Jesus has an emphatic I in the original language that isn't there. Like uh, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life. The I in the Greek is not necessary. It's there in the verb, like in lots of languages. But no, it's ego, I me. It's got an emphatic ego in there. And that echoes a lot of the great God statements in their Bible. Especially Isaiah. I, the Lord, with the first of them and the last, I am he. And throughout those chapters from Isaiah 40 onwards, there are a number of sort of statements from the God, Yahweh, Jehovah, as we used to mispronounce it, using God's name, but saying, I am he. I, even I, am the one who blots out your sins, that kind of statement. And so Jesus saying, I am the Father of one, they want to stone him as a result. They want to pick up the broken stones and kill him. And this opposition is going to grow. In the next chapter, Jesus comes back to just a couple of miles from Jerusalem and raises Lazarus from the dead. And in chapter 12, it tells us their response to him raising Lazarus from the dead is they don't only want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus as well. But Jesus, at the end of chapter 10, just after the passage we've read, And Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And here he stayed. And many people came to him. And they said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So here we are at the kind of center of the gospel, approaching the hinge where the big question is going to turn from, who is this man? To why did he come? And the opposition is growing. And in chapter 12, towards the end, we're going to have Jesus saying, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, nothing comes of it. And when I am lifted up, all men will be drawn to me. We are safe in Jesus' care if we believe. And the contrast in this chapter is between those who refuse to believe because of their narrow-minded religion and those who can hear his voice and accept him and believe and get eternal life. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe and to trust in you and follow you and help us to accept opposition and persecution when it comes. We pray for those throughout the world who are Christians who are persecuted and for whom the name of Jesus still is a stumbling block. And we thank you for our freedom and that we can be here today. Amen.